This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books in History. My name is Isabel Moore, and I'm a host on the channel. Today, my conversation is with Emily Hobson, an assistant professor of history and of gender, race, and identity at University of Nevada, Reno, and a scholar activist. Today, we're talking about her book, Lavender and Red, Liberation and Solidarity in the Gay and Lesbian Left, published by University of California Press in 2016. In the book, Hobson examines gay, lesbian, and queer radicalism from the late 1960s through the end of the Cold War in the San Francisco Bay Area. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Isabel Moore, one of the hosts of the channel, and today we'll be talking to Emily Hobson about her book, Lavender and Red, Liberation and Solidarity in the Gay and Lesbian Left. Emily Hobson, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. Emily, I wonder if you could start um, by just telling us a little bit about your background, um, personal and academic, and how you became interested in the study of history. Sure. So my interest in history, and especially in social movement history, began when I was pretty young. Um, I often date it to watching Eyes on the Prize as a child, (laughs) uh, including with my parents, um, and that we watched it together and they would pause and talk about their reactions at the time. And I could see their emotional reactions to, to the history being recounted. Um, so that had a big impact on me, both learning that history in a way that was accessible to me at the time as a kid in middle school. And I think also seeing the, the meaning that it still held, um, for, you know, people who I didn't think about as, hugely political or activist. So that kind of sparked my interest from a young age. So then um, I brought that interest definitely into college, into the activism I was getting involved in in college. Um, And uh, after my junior year, I took a year off um, from undergraduate education um, because I wanted to be doing activism full time, basically, and also really had no idea what I could do after I graduated (laughs) Um, and kind of saw a lot of people around me very kind of confident of some next step they were taking, often a very kind of clear professional step um, into law school, into um, graduate school, and then even people I knew who had been, I had been organizing with on campus, but who were going into you know, banking and and kind of careers that seemed odd to me, given their other interests. And they were, many of them were were going into that kind of work really to kind of pay down loans, 
um, and because it was a clear path, like they could sort of clearly take it. So I took a year off after my junior year because I didn't want to just go into something kind of already predetermined. Um, I didn't think I wanted to go straight into graduate school, even though that was the clearest thing I could imagine myself doing, maybe eventually becoming a professor. And I, I had been an undergraduate at Harvard. I went across the country to the Bay Area to because it struck me as sort of the place I thought of as a place with all kinds of um, social justice organizing going on. And worked there for a year, um, including for a community organizing group that existed at the time called the Center for Third World Organizing. And then went back finished the BA and after graduating, moved back to the Bay Area for another several years. And one of the things that living in the Bay Area really reinforced for me was not just the kind of experience I got doing both paid and unpaid organizing work, but also the kind of what it was like to live in a place with a still at that time a pretty strong connection to a radical past you know, whether in the form of murals in neighborhoods or lots of different community events um, where you could go kind of hear from longtime activists reflecting on the importance of a particular kind of political moment um, or kind of the ways that radical history was interwoven into the music scene, into kind of other kinds of cultural scene. Um, so I would say that the kind of from that early interest as a kid to then um, living in the Bay Area and seeing this kind of radical history all around me really um, helped me to then go into graduate school knowing that I wanted to um, study social movements and, and to write about them, um, to write about radical history, but with a kind of connection back to some of the ways that that could really hold meaning for people outside of the academy um, and in movement building day to day. Great. So how um, did that trajectory take you into writing this particular book? Yeah, so I didn't really get to learn much queer history as an undergraduate. And I got a bit of a sense of it after graduation just through, you know, the kind of um, political scene I was part of. Um, and through my own process of coming out, I came out really after college um, despite a number of fits and starts during college, I would say. And uh, so I, but I still wasn't really grounded. You know, I didn't have like a rich um, training in queer history at all. And some of that was, of course, um, that it is still a relatively young field, right? It was just difficult to find people doing work in the field. I was an undergraduate from 93, 1993 to 1998, and the courses I could take in queer studies were almost entirely literary theory, um, kind of cultural studies. I really don't remember even opportunities to learn about um, to, and to kind of think through LGBTQ experiences in a really historical way. Um, so when I went into graduate school, I knew that that was kind of something I was hoping to do was to kind of enrich some of my training um, on queer topics, although I, went, I didn't actually apply thinking I wanted to do a, a queer history project. But I um, started to do some, you know, poking around investigation of possible research topics during my first year in graduate school. 
And uh, one of the things I was doing was um, I developed a, a directive reading with David Rahman, who uh, became one of my committee members on um, archives and primary sources from the kind of height of the emergence of gay liberation. Because um, I was really interested to look at how were people really talking about the movement at its emergence. And one of the things I noticed was just how incredibly multi-issue um, a lot of the politics was, but that that wasn't yet reflected in some of the scholarship on the period. Um, and also how many kind of unspoken assumptions there were in some of the primary sources about that kind of broader political context. So, for example, I remember watching and trying to take apart the documentary Word is Out, which was um, put together and, and then released in 1977 and 78. And uh, it's a documentary that doesn't really have a ra a, an extremely radical agenda. It is a documentary that was, you know, screened on PBS. It has this intention of, of showcasing kind of a broad range of gay and lesbian experiences around the United States. It's fairly tokenistic in its approach to um, including people of color. Um, you know, so it kind of tries to do this, you know, here's a catalog of all the different types of gay people <laughs> and all of their experiences in under, coming to understand their sexuality and, and coming out. And, you know, so in and of itself, it doesn't express the kind of politics I ultimately came to describing in Lavender and Red. But I kept noticing that throughout the interviews, you would see people making references to this broader kind of radical context or to, um, you know, they might be wearing buttons or have posters in the background of the room that they're being interviewed in. Um, for example, one of the people in the film is Teddy Matthews, who has a pretty prominent place in Lavender and Red. And in his Word is Out interview, he's wearing an, a button for the Inez Garcia campaign. He's, you know, very clearly talking about these kind of radical interconnections. Um, and in fact, the scholar Greg Yeomans has done some really wonderful work about Word is Out in particular. But of course, that, that came out later after I had died, you know, first dived into the project. But the, some of those were some of the connections that I was trying to figure out was, you know, what was the bigger context um, through which gay liberation and lesbian feminism developed? And why has that kind of richer array of politics not, you know, been talked about? Why has um, why has the story of queer activism so much focused in on an effort to determine the kind of single issue story? Um, and, and what does that leave out? Wow. So, um, from there, as you're looking into all these archives, how did you arrive at, I assume this is your dissertation book. Um, your dissertation took form and, and moved into the book. Yeah. Awesome. Well, let's just jump into the book. Um, so you took all of that, that background that you were seeing and, um, in your book, you focus on gay, lesbian, and queer radicalism from the late 60s, really through the 90s and into the 2000s in your epilogue, um, using the Bay Area of California as a case study. So in your first chapter, you're, you're looking at gay men from 1969 to 1973. Could you tell us about the roots of their radicalism, the debates they had, 
um, how they came to build coalitions and prioritize that kind of work? Sure, absolutely. So, right, the first chapter focuses in on on radical gay men, whereas the second looks um, primarily at lesbian feminists, and then from there it's a fairly co-gender story or multi-gender story. Um, so the, in the first chapter, I'm really kind of trying to think through um, the, the, some of the rhetoric that radical gay men were developing. So precisely what did gay liberation mean um, to them and what, what, what was the broader context of liberation through which gay liberation was being um, defined? And one of the things you can see from a lot of the early documents of gay liberation um, well, is that first of all, the movement is developing in part through people writing and thinking. Um, of course, it's also developing through, you know, um, performance, through street protests, through, uh, you know, people's love lives, through people's community um, formation, through their collective living, all kinds of different ways that the movement is developing. But one of the, the clearest ways to track it is through the radical underground press, and then, of course, more specifically, the beginnings of um, gay and lesbian newspapers um, that are not entirely controlled by the earlier homophile movement. So this kind of new gay liberation newspapers are a really important archive for the first chapter. Come Out, Gay Sunshine, a number of other publications. And in the pages of those uh, publications, you really see people trying to define what is what is the politics of being gay and of anti-gay oppression? Um, how is anti-gay bias, oppression, et cetera, you know, interconnected with structures of racism, of capitalism, of U.S. imperialism? How is it different? How is it unique? Um, but also, how is it interwoven? And uh, so the first chapter really tries to trace out what arguments people were making. And one of the big debates I started to see was a kind of debate over the use of analogy between sexuality and race. Um, so gay as like black, especially as a really important comparison. And then a borrowing of kind of terminology from in particular um, black radicalism, but also other kinds of um, race-based and anti-racist organizing. So, for example, um, the the chapter title includes this heavily debated term, the gay ghetto. So if we're going to describe the experience of anti-gay oppression as somehow making gay men's experiences as somehow like a ghetto, what does that mean? What does it imply? Is it a, you know, is it a correct kind of analogy to make? Um, and uh, how might it reframe thinking about oppression more broadly? And what I saw was that there emerged really quickly early on a critique of the limits of analogy. So a lot of activists saying, look, sexuality and race are two different kinds of categories. And especially for gay white men to say that they're experiencing the same thing <laughs> as racism just doesn't make sense. Um, and it obviously leaves out the experiences of um, queer people of color or you know, third world gay people, as the term was going at the time. Um, but it also 
it, it doesn't even get at some of the actual connections in terms of police brutality, in terms of treatment within the military and so forth. So on the one hand, there's this pushback against kind of too sloppy use of analogy. But on the other hand, there's an effort to say that, okay, although the analogy is flawed, there are these kinds of interconnections through things like experiences of the police. And that if we start to look at how anti-gay uh, oppression isn't just localized within a particular neighborhood, then we kind of see how there is a kind of, there's a form of alienation that people are experiencing, you know, a kind of isolation from one another, as well as from kind of mainstream society. And uh, so I could sort of see the ways that people were using a language of um, really a kind of geographic scale to think about how anti-gay structures we're really kind of operating at the level of people's individual bodies and um, therefore how gay liberation was starting to articulate how men might remake their own gender expression along with you know, opposing the Vietnam War, standing in solidarity with black power and so forth. So it's a, it's a complex argument in that first chapter, um, but it is kind of trying to think through the types of comparisons that people are making and how it is that they're beginning to conceptualize gayness as connected to, although different from, other structures of oppression. Wonderful. And you do some similar work in your next chapter on lesbian feminism and their philosophy of collective defense. Could you tell us about what you found when you looked at um, lesbian feminists during an overlapping time period? Yeah, absolutely. So this was a really fun um, chapter to start to figure out and think through. And um, it's uh, chapter two uses this concept that it, it's my own, but it, um, I think emerges very much out of and kind of resonates with lesbian feminist language at the time, which is this concept of collective defense, something a little bit different than a very personal notion of self-defense. Um, and, uh, something that kind of points to the idea of lesbian feminist community as a site of protection um, and resistance to state violence and state power. So collective defense describes a whole range of kinds of activities. Um, I first really noticed it through the group Gay Women's Liberation, or GWL, which was the first lesbian feminist organization to form in the Bay Area that was independent of earlier homophile organizations. And GWL included the participation of um, Judy Gron, Pat Parker, a number of other women, but Judy Gron and Pat Parker are among the sort of two of the best known members within it, two um, really important poets, of course. And uh, GWL forms at the end of 1969, and uh, one of its members' first actions is to join um, what was called a living wall of defense against police threats, um, a, a kind of a support gesture that had been asked for by the San Francisco uh, chapter of the Black Panther Party. So this is, of course, at a moment when the Panthers, you know, in Los Angeles and elsewhere, kind of nationally, are facing incre increased 
state repression and GWL members are some of the people who go out to sort of stand in support um, of the Panthers against that kind of repression. So they're clearly kind of engaged with and learning from a notion of some kind of defense against um, state power in that moment. And then they move on to kind of draw on their both, not only their specific ties to the Panthers, but sort of more broadly, some of the ideas being mobilized by the Panthers to think more about uh, gendered violence. So for example, they participate in a local mini conference of the Panthers uh, Revolutionary People's Constitutional Convention. They participate in this kind of mini conference within um, Berkeley and develop um, a set of demands to address gendered violence within the city of Berkeley. So that includes diverting some of the Berkeley police budget to women's liberation um, groups. It includes free 24-hour bus transportation for women. Um, it includes women's rights to carry uh, weapons, kind of a whole set of demands that I don't think the group was you know, convinced that they would win, right? But it was a way to articulate a kind of agenda of women's self-protection both um, kind of on their own terms and in relationship to other radical groups. From there, GWL goes on to continue to, for example, they adapt the Panthers' um, practices of police patrols uh, to confront individual uh, men who they, you know, had, had evidence had um, harassed or assaulted women um, so, for example, they um, uh, use kind of a form of picketing to um, speak out against the man who had allegedly raped a dancer at a bachelor party. Um, they stage interventions with individual men who had committed domestic violence um, against women in the network. So they're engaging in this kind of like creative readaptation of um, some of the kinds of strategies that they had been witnessing um, from the Panthers. And uh, GWL then also feeds directly into some other somewhat better known work against rape in the Bay Area. For example, the formation of the San Francisco Women Against Rape, which was one of the first rape crisis centers in the U.S. Um, the rest of the chapter then kind of moves on from this early history to look at a few different uh, really important cases, primarily including the Inez Garcia case, and then the Susan Sachs case. So lesbian feminists were really involved in supporting both of these women who um, were imprisoned for, you know, very different reasons, but reasons that activists were, were linking. So Inez Garcia uh, was a Cuban and Puerto Rican woman who um, had been living in Soledad, California, in order to be near her husband, who was imprisoned in Soledad prison. Uh, which, importantly enough, of course, is the, the site where the Soledad Three had been held. Um, and uh, while she's living there in Soledad, um, these two men who are acquaintances of her housemate uh, attack her, rape her, uh, then phone her afterwards to mock her. She goes to confront them, and uh, they again attempt to attack her, and she fires on them, killing one of one of the men who had attacked her. So she, uh, you know, claims this as a self-defense case. Um, and, uh, 
you know, is initially actually sentenced to murder because the judge, um, you know, denies the self-defense claim. Um, the judge and the jury to deny the self-defense claim. She gets some initial support from local activists, even in the first trial, but after she's convicted, she really um, sees a kind of even bigger uh, campaign. And um, you see uh, lesbian feminists really mobilizing in significant numbers to pr protest the case and to, to move towards the appeal. So the Inez Garcia case develops a, a tremendous amount of support um, from feminists in general, but including quite a number of lesbian feminists. Um, and one of the things that's really interesting about her case that a number of people have talked about who are, have been studying it uh, is that um, activists define her and a few other women who um, are the subjects of really high profile self-defense um, against rape cases at this time, including Joanne Little and others, they define these women as political prisoners. Um, you know, because their right to bodily autonomy has been denied through their convictions or, th or through the, the, the possible conviction that they may be facing, depending on, on the circumstances of each case. Um, so what you see is that feminists are really kind of building on the broader language of political prisoner, which usually is used to apply to someone who has, you know, been accused of or has committed some kind of act that is clearly kind of organized with political intent. And they're using that kind of language to apply to women who have engaged in self-defense and to as, as a way to politicize um, work against rape. So the Inez Garcia case is a really important sort of moment of mobilization for a lot of lesbian feminists in the Bay Area, although I also really try to look at some of the fissures that emerge in the campaign um, along lines of race, that it is also a site um, where you have primarily a, a network of white lesbian feminists working to support Garcia, but not necessarily... Um, kind of drawing in or drawing strong connections to women of color who are organizing or other people of color who are organizing around her case. So I use that kind of as an example to look at the ongoing significance of collective defense, but also um, some of the, the tensions that are emerging um, around the organizing. And then the third example in the chapter looks at Susan Sachs, um, whose case was happening simultaneously with Garcia's. And Susan Sachs was a white woman, and by the time her defense case um, came up as a, as a public rallying cry, also identified as a lesbian, um, Sachs had been involved in a group in 1970 that um, uh, had stolen some National Guard documents to reveal um, the extent of federal repression of anti-war activity, and then also had participated in a bank robbery that was intended to fund the Panthers, but during which one of the members of the group, a man in the group, um, wound up killing a Boston police officer. So after the course of that uh, event, Sachs and Catherine Ann Power, her associate, went underground, and what became really significant was that they lived for about five years underground, mostly in lesbian feminist community. Um, so, you know, that was how they were able to protect themselves and evade state repression. Sachs eventually surrendered herself for arrest in part because 
grand juries and other forms of, you know, state agents were really coming after lesbian feminist communities because they had begin, begun to figure out that this was where Sachs was um, hiding out. So Sachs surrenders herself for arrest, but in her arrest statement says that she's a lesbian, that she's a feminist, and says that the, the love that I share with my sisters is a more powerful weapon than any the state can bring to bear against us. So Sachs herself kind of defines lesbian feminist community and even eroticism um, or erotic links um, as a form of resistance to state repression. Great. So let's, um, let's look at from there, that takes us through all of this rich, complex stuff happening in the early 70s. Um, and after looking at the lesbian feminists, you begin to profile gay organizing in the mid-70s, which is usually thought of as a time towards a more liberal analysis. But you found something different. Could you tell us about what happened during that period and how you made sense of it? Sure, yeah. So this was um, a really interesting moment to look at because, as you say, the general account of gay and lesbian politics in the 1970s is this, you know, very radical beginnings that, that diminish um, and that move in directions of either continued radicalism but, but with very separatist um, undertones or very separatist kinds of cultural dimensions or uh, somewhat more coalitional but very liberal um, legal and rights-based agenda. And what I found was that while those two currents did exist, the sort of more separatist radicalism and uh, more liberal kind of rights-based work, that there was also this other alternative that many, many gay and lesbian radicals were forming that I was really the moment as I was researching that was when I really began to identify that over the course of a couple decades, you could describe a gay and lesbian left. So among gay men, what I started to see was that um, many of the same radicals who I kind of trace in, in the first chapter who had initially I traced mostly through their kinds of debates with one another by about 1973, 74, certainly 1975, they are beginning to form new organizations that, um, for example, borrow a lot from emerging socialist feminist models um, among women that are looking to confront new sites, or not new sites of U.S. empire, but you know, sites of U.S. empire that are growing increasing attention as the war in Vietnam draws down. Um, they are starting to think more and more about how gay men are very specifically affected by uh, kind of gender divisions in the economy. So they, they draw on socialist feminist thought to think about um, gay men's experiences of discrimination on the job, their you know, kind of concentration in relatively low-income service jobs like as waiters and hairdressers, um, their discrimination on the job if they appear too effeminate, these kinds of problems. Um, they begin to make inroads in forming some uh, alliances with organized labor, particularly in the Bay Area. It takes a little longer nationally, of course, um, but 
there's really important work that, st- that starts to be done through kinds of solidarity campaigns on the Coors Beer Boycott, on the Farm Workers Boycott, and other campaigns. Um, and uh, they also begin then to translate some of those um, investments, those political investments, to a much broader and growing network of gay men's community that's itself, of course, growing in the Bay Area um, simply because of the kind of reputation of the Bay Area as a site of gay and lesbian community. So, you know, gay and lesbian community more broadly is growing in the Bay Area and the gay and lesbian left is growing and speaking to that broader community. So um, in chapter three, I, I put a lot of emphasis on the growth of a group called Bay Area Gay Liberation or BAGEL, which had some roots in some smaller... Um, more kind of ideological, socialist, feminist, um, gay men's networks. Um, But by 1975, really responds to um, a a moment of um, very intense police crackdown in the Castro um, that was known as the Castro sweep. So it's this kind of convergence of, you know, kind of uh, gay activists who have a long radical history with other men who have somewhat less developed politics, but are really upset by this very basic issue of, of um, policing and um, are drawn in by the potential to um, kind of re-energize um, street protest and so forth. And so Bagel becomes a really significant organization um, that for a period of time has quite large meetings, you know, hundreds strong um, and, uh, is in in many ways, I think, kind of the sort of the shock troops for much of the somewhat better known, more liberal gains that happened later in the decade um, through um, the defeat of Proposition Six, um, through the Harvey Milk um, Harvey Milk's you know final super supervisor campaign. Um, and so I try to kind of really lift out how Bagel and a number of other groups that it worked with, including the Third World Gay Caucus and others, really kind of created this potential for uh, mass mobilization in the San Francisco Bay Area across the the latter half of the 1970s. Um, And uh, I think I'll stop there. Yeah, well, um, there's so much we could go into, but there's so much more still in the book. So let's, um, let's move to, you know, moving a few years later after, after this emerging gay and lesbian left is taking hold. Um, you turn to a little known facet of lesbian and gay activism in the late seventies and early eighties, which is the transnational solidarity with Nicaragua. So mm-hmm. can you tell us about the work that these activists were engaged in and why you found it to be so so key to understanding um, what you were looking at? Right. So uh, the Nicaraguan Solidarity Movement in particular, on, and then more broadly, Central American Solidarity, uh, becomes a very important part of gay and lesbian politics in, in the 1980s uh, nationally. And... I found uh, a lot of its roots in the Bay Area in the later 1970s. Uh, and um, it's been really energizing to talk about this aspect of the book with audiences as well as, of course, the people I interviewed, um, because uh, routinely I get this kind of response 
you know, of, of people being, being glad to know that anybody remembers that this was an important part of gay and lesbian politics, um, because it's been kind of so sort of swept away. Um, but it really did mobilize large numbers of people and um, was not only kind of a broader movement in which gay and lesbian people participated, but also became a way that uh, gay and lesbian left politics really um, were articulated, right? So it's not just a story of participation, but also of this kind of semi-autonomous um, and very specifically kind of transnational sexual politics. So the reason um, for why this connection emerges, there's a few different reasons. In the Bay Area, there's a very kind of localized region reason, uh, which is that um, the Nicaraguan Solidarity Movement more broadly has some very strong roots in San Francisco. So um, there are you know, Nicaraguan immigrants and exiles living in the Bay Area, and particularly in San Francisco, um, really kind of for, for decades after um, the kind of institutionalization of the Somoza regime, um, starting in the 1930s. Uh, but that community really grows um, by the early 1970s as the FSLN or the Sandinista movement is really um, developing in Nicaragua and in Mexico and with some footholds in Cuba and kind of across the Americas. Because, of course, you know, one of the things that's happening with the Sandinista movement is people aren't just organizing in Nicaragua. They're also leaving Nicaragua because they are persecuted as radicals there. And they are, um, you know, living for a period of time outside the country um, in order to kind of stay alive and in order to network with one another. So, uh, you know, there's a few different people who are really important in, in this who lots of other people have talked about, but who show up as significant in my story simply because of their local connections. Um, Roberto Vargas is a Nicaraguan who kind of gets connected um, to solidarity work while having grown up um, in part in San Francisco and a number of other people. And they're mostly localized in the San Francisco Mission District, which is also by the 1970s becoming, you know, an important site of, in particular, a uh, lesbian community, and it's right next door to the Castro. So there's this very kind of neighborhood-based um, roots of transnational solidarity work that's going on. And this is also happening at a moment when many, many gay and lesbian activists are attempting to confront um, issues of racism and, and segregation within queer community. Um, so, you know, groups like Bagel have been confronting practices of racism in gay bars. Um, people connected to the Inez Garcia campaign have been trying to address kind of fissures around race in, in those campaigns. And as Nicaraguan solidarity develops as this kind of localized, you know, neighborhood-based, what another scholar, Kerry Cordova, calls barrio transnationalism, Nicaraguan solidarity and supporting it becomes a way to express one's, you know, allegiances and, and solidarity with, with kind of other um, issues and, and, and really just one's neighbors, right? So that's one of the key reasons that Nicaraguan solidarity becomes so important in the Bay Area is just how localized it is. Another reason is that, um, you know, especially after 1981, once Reagan comes in, the new right 
globally is going after, you know, certainly going after gay and lesbian people, but also Reagan, of course, is supporting the Contras um, and trying to unseat the Sandinistas from power. So there's this kind of common enemy argument. And then the third reason is that the Sandinistas themselves have come into power um, in 1979 with really prominent um, existence of, of women leaders in the revolution, both in the military um, takeover and then in the government once, once they're in power after 79. So there's a kind of um, admiration of um, women's militancy that is both broadly feminist and um, connects in, uh, in a lot of ways to the kind of rhetoric of lesbian feminist collective defense that had already been established. Um, and that seems to many people to hold out a kind of promise for perhaps some, um, you know, much more literal gay and lesbian inclusion that might be able to occur in Nicaragua that might be different than, for example, some of the exclusions that people had seen in the Cuban revolution. So um, this is all the kind of conceptual reasons for why Nicaraguan solidarity matters to the story. Uh, I first really discovered the existence of Nicaraguan solidarity just again through the archives. Um, so, you know, I, I really first noticed the connection while browsing in a bookstore in Oakland and noticing that somebody whose name I, I had, um, you know, seen elsewhere in lesbian feminist work and in fact, who I actually knew personally through my own past organizing in the Bay Area, Rebecca Gordon, that she had written this book about her time in Nicaraguan solidarity, which very much centers on the question of what is it to be a lesbian feminist working in solidarity with Nicaragua. And so I was kind of fascinated that, you know, this book had been published that it clearly had been widely distributed enough to still find multiple copies in bookstores around the Bay Area, um, that I hadn't really ever heard about it from Rebecca herself, even though I knew her, <laughs> um, because it had been taken for granted among many people of her generation that this was part of her history. So she didn't, it didn't occur to her, I don't think, that she had to talk about this to a, you know, a younger generation. Um, but I could see that this was kind of part of a, a past history that I was really eager to uncover. Wow. And, and that ends up being important even, um, after that time, um, where you, where you look at all these complex connections that people were building, um, as the AIDS crisis begins to hit. So can you talk about some of the links that you found between, um, the evolution of transnational solidarity with Nicaragua, transnational feminism, and AIDS activism um, as we move forward in the 80s. Absolutely. There's so many really fascinating connections here. So um, there's, there's two main ways that connections started to develop between Central American solidarity and AIDS activism. One was actually through um, prevention and care work. So... Chapter five, which looks um, very closely at the formation um, of, in particular, of um, gay and lesbian uh, brigades to Nicaragua, including the Victor Victoria Mercado Brigade, which was the first gay and lesbian brigade to Nicaragua and was also purposefully majority women of color. I look at that group. Um, and then I look at kind of out of that, how is it that 
uh, activists based in the Bay Area and Nicaraguan activists themselves, a Nicaraguan gay and lesbian activists, uh, talk to each other and what kinds of exchanges did they have about transnational solidarity, about gay and lesbian politics in both the U.S. and Nicaragua, um, what kinds of resources did they exchange, you know, how did that uh, influence become a very circular influence and not only one that kind of went from the Bay Area, you know, as if uh, the, the chapter really tries to undermine the kind of assumption that we might make that if Bay Area gay and lesbian activists traveled to Nicaragua, that they must have been kind of exporting, you know, sexual politics in Nicaragua or sort of teaching Nicaraguan gay and lesbian people how to organize quite the opposite. I really saw a lot of, you know, debate exchange back and forth and Nicaraguan gay and lesbian activists really very carefully manipulating international knowledge about their movement and about their goals. Um, and one of the places that really emerged as a site of that exchange was by the late 1980s um, AIDS work. So um, after the Victoria Mercado Brigade, some of the same people in that group and then a kind of slightly larger network uh, went back to Nicaragua um, to, um, uh, you know, participate in a conference, a health conference, and to make a presentation about HIV and AIDS prevention and care. And um, Nicaraguan activists, as well as some people within the um, health ministry uh, under the Sandinista government, kind of took on those resources and continued to work with some of the North American activists to advance AIDS work within Nicaragua. So that was kind of one aspect of the story was, um, you know, not so much the story of street protest around AIDS, but really the kind of, um, you know, sort of community health um, model of activism. But this other side of the story I found was about street protest um, and was the kind of ways that people took skills and lessons from anti-intervention civil disobedience work um, directly into the formation of direct action against the AIDS epidemic. So um, usually we tell the story of AIDS direct action just start to finish through ACT UP. Um, so we sort of assume that the first group to engage in street protest around AIDS was ACT UP starting in March 1987 in New York City. Um, but what I found was that there are actually two organizations in San Francisco that began that kind of protest uh, about six months before ACT UP um, initiated its work in New York. Citizens for Medical Justice, and the AIDS Action Pledge. And both of those groups um, basically took individuals as well as tactics directly out of Central American solidarity protest um, organizations, including an anti-intervention group called the Pledge of Resistance. So just even the language of a pledge, the idea that individual people would pledge to engage in protest and civil disobedience against a key problem was borrowed from Pledge of Resistance over into the AIDS Action Pledge. And in San Francisco, the AIDS Action Pledge continued to be active for, um, you know, about another year before it morphed into calling itself ACT UP San Francisco. So I trace out how that kind of um, anti-militarist politics shaped um, local organizing for example, shaped the, the popularity of slogans like money for AIDS, not war, 
shaped the kinds of networks that people could call on if they were going to mobilize for a major protest, whether a Central America protest or an AIDS protest, shaped the ways that people thought about, um, you know, using the, the idea of using uh, kind of military funding and converting it into um, funding on the AIDS epidemic, which also then allowed them to rethink AIDS from a kind of framework of pathology or disease to a framework of public health needs. And so I tried to chase out that um, history. And uh, one of the things that I think is also really significant is that those, those same connections also show up in 1987 in the March on Washington for Lesbian and Gay Rights, which is the second March on Washington for Lesbian and Gay Rights, right, immediately after the, the one that had happened in 1979. That march, um, two days after the march, people organized a massive civil disobedience at the Supreme Court that uh, protested both the recent Supreme Court Bowers decision, um, you know, uh, maintaining laws against sodomy, and protested federal inaction on the AIDS epidemic. And the handbook for that Supreme Court civil disobedience, which was really just the second largest um, mass civil disobedience and mass arrests in the Capitol, second only to a Vietnam War protest in 1971. Um, the handbook really cites all the history that I had uncovered, right? So it talks about gays and lesbians in Central America, gays and lesbians in the anti-nuclear movement. How is it that we know how to commit civil disobedience? You know, uh, the people of color in the gay and lesbian movement, right? How is it that we know how to think through, um, or how is it that we're attempting to think through um, issues around race and ethnicity in relationship to, to sexual identity and sexual politics? So the handbook really emerged for me as a key archive of that chapter, that it really encapsulated the power of people's awareness of radical history as something that could motivate them in that particular moment. Wow, so much there. That's um, exciting. So we're in the 90s, and there's so much more we could do, but let's move into where you take us from the 90s to the present with all of this this groundwork that you found in the Bay Area. Um, you turn to looking at LGBTQ radicalism sort of nationally, um, from the 90s to the present and some of the, the shifts that were happening that were related to that. Could you share um, what you see as the major developments during that time? Sure. Well, and the, the bulk of the action of the book ends about 1991. I, I don't really make any claims to writing a history of queer radicalism in the 1990s, okay. but I do try to kind of sweep through um, some major events in that moment. Um, I actually make an argument that um, I described the gay and lesbian left as moving from about 1968 um, and then, of course, after 1969 through about 1991. And I, I describe it as ending in that moment um, in part because, of course, we start to see, you know, certainly by 1991 and, and really even a few years earlier, the emergence of a much more decisively queer politics that um, contests some of the kinds of framing of identity that had certainly marked the gay and lesbian left that were, were although more fluid than I think we often give credit, certainly uh, more, more invested in the kind of clear containers around gay and lesbian as distinct 
you know, sexual identities and also as distinct from bisexual and as distinct from transgender and so forth. You know, so by the late 1980s, we see a queer politics that is contesting that pretty clearly and that starts to shift away um, from some of the networks that had really defined the gay and lesbian left. That's one reason for that difference. Um, but I also describe the gay and lesbian left as uh, wrapping up by about 1991 because um, in large part that I, I really noticed the impact of AIDS itself on the networks and the organizations I was examining. That just as growing numbers of activists themselves died, that, you know, of course, groups changed, their membership changed, their rhetoric changed, and this kind of passing down of the that generation's radical history uh, really was arrested by the epidemic itself. Um, so I mark that as a break for a couple different reasons. Um, you know, the shift in kind of language around sexuality itself, the impact of AIDS, and of course, the end of the Cold War, which also dramatically alters the meanings of the left, and leaves, I think, a lot of people kind of adrift as they figure out, you know, what is the sort of unifying politics um, in the aftermath of the Cold War for, for progressive and left people. So some of the things that then happen after that, that I kind of speed my way through <laughs> in the epilogue, um, include, for example, the really decisive shift towards and kind of, you know, mainstream rise of um, the fight for gay and lesbian inclusion in the military, which gay and lesbian leftists had never really in, been invested in, had, had really opposed. Um, you know, they had come out directly out of anti-war and anti-militarist organizing and were not interested in advocating for military inclusion. Um, but of course, that was a goal that um, did draw in a fair number of people who didn't have connections to a broader left politics. Um, so I trace out how that became a moment of real kind of disappointment um, for the gay and lesbian left um, and how a kind of, you know, alternate form of queer radicalism continued to exist, right, although be under-recognized across the 1990s and through the 2000s and, of course, through to today. Um, but I really try to name the past few years as um, – a moment of resurgence of queer radicalism. You know, certainly nothing really went away over the past couple decades um, since the early 1990s, but uh, I have noticed quite a bit more upsurge in investments in uh, a radical queer critique um, through all kinds of things, um, Palestinian solidarity, uh, through the really strong growth of um, trans immigrant organizing and trans of color organizing, um, and also through the ways in particular I really name in the epilogue the growth of Black Lives Matter as uh, a formation in which there are not only many, um, you know, very much self-identified queer leaders, right? Um, Lisa Garza, uh, Patrice Cullors, and many members in BYP 100, um, but also... Uh, the ways that Black Lives Matter really has issued such a sharp challenge to a kind of politics um, of kind of normative gender, of you know, kind of normative respectability in how people ought to interact with police, 
um, of, of sort of normative respectability in terms of, you know, what kinds of targets of violence ought to be named as worthy of defense, right? Um, so uh, I, I'd really try to lift up some of the ways that um, Black Lives Matter and the mobilization for Black Lives has uh, certainly from, you know, looking from within it, made a strong effort to connect to efforts like um, Say Her Name and uh, work among, you know, defending black trans lives and um, other kinds of, you know, broad issues that we would name as very clearly visibly queer um, and that they've articulated a connection between those kinds of cases and the cases that the media continues to tend to um, focus in much more clearly of cis men, right, who are um, being assaulted, who I think are often identified as the most visible targets in part because they reinforce the dominant narrative that argues that anybody killed by police, you know, somehow must have actually been violent and aggressive, right? So to focus in on cis men sort of allows people to assume that somehow those people murdered deserved it. Right. Um, whereas if we really start to name the ways that um, black women also are um, incredibly frequent targets of police violence and black trans people are incredibly frequent targets of police violence, um, then uh, we'll have to be a little bit more open about the ways that clearly the problem is the police violence. Right. And um, that it's about the sort of perception of the person attacked. Um, and, and not, you know, something inherent about their behavior. Great. So you, um, you cover so much ground in this book, and we've taken up a lot of your time. Um, I'm so glad that we've, we've been able to, to talk about all the, the rich, multifaceted aspects of, um, of your topic. Um, can you tell us what you're working on now? Sure. So there's two major things I've been working on. Um, one is that um, I'm working with my um, friend and colleague, Dan Berger, um, author of Captive Nation, among other texts. He and I are working on a primary source anthology of radicalism from about 1973 to 2001 is about the time frame we're considering uh, and, and working on compiling primary sources, you know, brief case studies of organizations um, and so forth. And uh, our goal in that anthology is in part to provide students and researchers and teachers um, a resource to um, really dig into histories of social movements. Um, and, and the focus is on uh, radicalism within the United States, although, of course, with kind of transnational and, and global awareness built in. We want to give people an, a way to really look at the um, continuation of radical movements after the height of the long 1960s, right? Because too often students can take a 1960s course, right? But they can't really um, take a course that acknowledges um, the, the incredible breadth and vibrancy of social movements after that period, right? So therefore we reify this notion that everything happens like in this you know, brief period of time that is now for our contemporary students really quite a long time ago. Um, so we're working on this anthology um, that we're really excited about. 
And uh, then another project that I'm working on that's you know, just my own research project that I'm beginning to develop uh, comes straight out of Lavender and Red, but um, it's trying to look at the connections um, between uh, AIDS activism and prison radicalism in the 1980s and 90s, uh, and in particular to focus in on AIDS activism that was developed um, by uh, prisoners inside prisons um, and by former prisoners as well. Um, one of the reasons for my interest in this is, um, well, first of all, that simply I, I found all these, you know, archives uh, at, in the, the research that I was doing for the last chapter that looks at the ties between Central American solidarity and AIDS direct action, you know, sort of one part of some of those boxes kept showing that they're one of the places that a lot of different activists I was looking at then went kind of after moving on from some of the direct action work was that they were looking at um, the issue of AIDS in prisons. So one was, you know, just the archives were clearly taking me to this topic. Um, and the other thing is that I've started to notice that um, a lot of these early AIDS prevention efforts that happened in prisons had some kind of connection to political prisoners. Um, so political prisoners were involved in these efforts um, and often were the kind of communication, um, the node of communication between efforts that were going on inside with then activists who were supportive on the outside. So I'm really intrigued by um, this kind of undertold story and uh, one of the questions I'm, I'm hoping to be able to address is how is it that the HIV AIDS movement and epidemic really helps to inform um, prison abolition uh, as we know it today? That sounds great. So um, your book covers so much about past activism and now a lot of people are asking questions about how to, how to make social change now, how to be engaged um, and how to answer some of these longstanding issues that you talk about in your book. Um, what do you see as the relevant relevance of the research that you did and what you found for our current political moment? Right. I mean, it's a, such an important question. And of course, you know, I finished the book, uh, in the summer of 2016, um, before the election, before the inauguration of Trump, and really also, of course, before this moment of um, quite dynamic resistance that we so need to sustain. Um, and so I've been trying to think about what the book can say to, to this moment of, of incredible change, of just volatility, right? And there's two things I've really thought about. One, I think about through the word genealogy, which, uh, you know, sometimes we think about genealogy in a, typically, I suppose, we think about genealogy in a very heteronormative kind of way, right? <laughs> Who are our grandparents and great-grandparents and so on and so forth. Uh, but I try to also think about genealogy in a somewhat broader um, kind of way where I, I think about, you know, as an individual Activist, who have I been mentored by? Who have my mentor has been mentored by? Um, and then, of course, then applying that to the kinds of history I'm trying to trace. What, in what ways did mentorship uh, and and relationships across 
movement moments and generations shape um, some of the politics and tracking, right? So I really try in the book to talk about individuals who appear and reappear at different moments and how they learn from one another and how they took lessons from one setting and applied it to the next. Um, and uh, I think that the last chapter that also tries to reflect on the ways that the AIDS epidemic made it difficult to sustain awareness of such genealogy really brought home for me how important that kind of connection is. Um, so I think one really broad lesson is that uh, it, it can be very helpful to us to know what has come before, um, what kinds of tactics have been used, and that just because a movement did not, you know, ultimately transform the world in some absolute way, doesn't mean that it didn't win some very important victories and also develop some very important tactics, lessons, and so forth. So I'm, I'm a real big believer in the power of connecting with each other across kind of movement generations, whether those are literal generations of age or simply of kind of historical moment, um, and of trying to trace out genealogies so that we know kind of where we have come from, um, both for, for better and for worse. And then the other really big concept, I mean, of course, solidarity is a really important keyword to my book. And I really try to argue that solidarity and liberation are formed through each other. Um, but I've also been thinking a lot about how solidarity might be different than just the notion of alliance. Um, so we often hear a lot about, you know, calling on people to be allies, right? Or when I, you know, first got a job at my institution, University of Nevada, Reno, I could put a sticker on my door that said I was an ally, a queer ally, right? And I've never put that sticker on my door because I'm not a queer ally. I'm just queer. <laughs> and I don't, I'd, I'd rather put things on my door that make that apparent um, than to, uh, to decide that the only way that I can claim some kind of, of um, politics of support is through this language of alliance that I think in some ways right, allows the person claiming it to kind of remove themselves from the identity. Um, you know, I've seen, see lots of that in some of the language around alliance that um, tends to reinforce the notion of a kind of separation between the person who claims themselves as ally and the thing that they are in alliance to. And I think solidarity is different. I think solidarity encourages, uh, encourages us to see our interests as interconnected, um, to see us a little bit more in one another, even while also acknowledging differences. Um, there's, a, there's a framing from Sarah Ahmed that I really love about solidarity, that you know, it, it, rec it allows us to recognize that uh, we don't live in the same bodies, we don't have the same feelings, but we do live on common ground, right? And that it is um, this thing that is, constantly, you know, being, uh, it's, it's, we're never quite getting there, right? It's something that we aspire towards, um, but it really only gains power by us constantly sort of questioning whether we have achieved it and constantly sort of self-critiquing it. Um, so I, I try to think about solidarity in that kind of a way as not the same as alliance and uh, as something that allows us to 
really kind of see ourselves in one another. And that I think is something that I have felt quite a bit of hope for in this moment. Um, you know, I keep waiting with bated breath for, uh, for LGBTQ politics to be decisively divided from, um, you know, opposition to the Muslim ban and, and so forth. And so far I haven't seen that happen so far. I have seen, uh, queer folks, both, you know, Muslim and then certainly non-Muslim really standing up and saying, we know that we have the same, um, the same opposition right now. And that might allow us to, you know, reject the kind of language that would divide us from one another. It's a little bit easier when you have such a clear enemy like the Trump administration. But my hope is always that in these moments of a really clear enemy that we can take some lessons from that that will then sustain us um, later at moments when the, the division might seem easier um, to, to allow. Great. Well, thank you so much for drawing out those lessons. Emily, you've been very generous with your time. Thank you for discussing your book with us today. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in to another edition of New Books in History. This is your host, Isabel Moore.